Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about and explore the roots of creativity and creative genius. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined by Kay Tempest Bradford. Do I have enough drama in my voice? As I, I feel like I need to drum it up more to. Maybe we could bring give in you... like some deep voice person, like the movie guy, in a world <laughs> where Aline and Kate Tempest <laughs> talk about the roots of creative originality. <laughs> there was an explosion. Who will save us now? Starring Robert Downey Jr., <gasps> one of the Chris's, and John Boyega. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's the new Jump opening Boy for our podcast. <laughs> so we could do something actually. Uh, so free agents on Relay FM, the podcasting network originality belongs to. They have an intro that was recorded by um, a, another show host <laughs> on Relay, um, and he's you know he's got a nice British British accent, so it's like a 007 style. Uh, introduction sounds kind of bondy. I'm down with this plan. We should we should try to make this happen. <laughs> we could do it. We can definitely in do a it. world. <laughs> I don't know anybody with a voice like that, though. I don't think have to find something. Um, anyway, Tempest, we are recording. I guess just a week before Christmas. So happy holidays. Happy holidays to everybody, and especially to Aline. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we don't actually have a, th- a holiday themed episode, but uh, I just thought I'd say it, throw it out there, let you know, you know, and that we're hip and timely, I guess. Um, so you had an experience recently where you got to be the artist in residence at a thing. And we're doing an episode about that, people. We're doing an episode about that. But as a result of this residency, you met somebody who is super fascinating and you managed to get them uh, to sit down and record with you for a little bit. Do you want to do you want to talk about it? Yeah, so the person that I met is Jody Eichelberger, and he is the program coordinator for Searle's Place, which is the residency that I was in uh, in November that we've hinted at and we're going to do an episode about, as Aline mentioned. And it was interesting because Jody was the person who sent me my letter saying, you've been accepted into this residency, and I was so excited. And when he did, he mentioned that he and I have a mutual friend in uh, author Mary Robinette Kowal. And once I met Jody and once I started talking to him, I realized that I had been hearing stories about Jody for years from Mary, um, mostly stories about their adventures in puppeteering. And that's when I also, like, sometimes it takes me a little while to unlock things in my mind. Like sometimes the tumblers mm-hmm. turn very slowly, mm-hmm. but that's when I, I also, that right. Uh, but that's, that's when I also start to realize that this was the Jody, not only who had worked with Mary on uh, a, a TV show that they were both on lazy town. They were both puppeteers on that show, but that he was also in Avenue Q. And I was like, I really think I need to sit down and have a conversation with Jody because he seems like a very fascinating person. And then I discovered that he's like even more fascinating than uh, I, I thought. So that was really cool. So, yeah, so I, I sat down to talk with him. We were actually in uh, the residency house at Sorrell's place when we had this conversation. 
in college, I started as an English major and kind of felt like, gosh, I could just do this with my friends. Like I had to wait two or three weeks to get to my writing, you know, and like I was paying a lot of money <laughs> to do that. So uh, I also was a singer and if I declared a music major, then they would pay for my voice lessons. Uh, so that just for economic reasons, I declared a music major, but then I accidentally graduated with a degree in music and uh, was focused on voice performance, doing opera. Uh, the next step after graduating would have been to go on to conservatory, which requires you to be hyper-focused in one specific area. And as a lyric baritone, it was super specific because there weren't a lot of roles for a lyric baritone. There are lots for tenors and a lot for basses. My, another interest that I'd had since I was a kid was puppetry. And in the Portland, Oregon, there was a company called Tears of Joy Theater. Uh, and I auditioned for them. And I was hired to be an itinerant puppeteer. So I went that direction instead of becoming an opera singer. So my first show with Tears of Joy was Rumpelstiltskin which combined performance and music and theater and setting up our own lights, so technical theater as well, setting up our own stage, traveling around in a van with one other person. So I toured that for nine months. Uh, then I wrote the next show, which was Pied Piper, and that allowed me to use some of the composition work that I'd done as a music major. Um, but writing for uh, puppetry, and we did like a puppet operetta. So I was able to include writing and composition in that career and performance, which was was nice. And that eventually, that uh, kind of career in puppetry led me to do, eventually to work with the Muppets in Elmo and Grouchland, uh, which was Elmo's first feature film. And <laughs> then from there, I auditioned for a show that was opening in New York called Avenue Q, which several people had said, like, you, it seems like they're asking for you. Like they want a person who sings and who does puppetry and who acts and, and looks like you. <laughs> and so, and uh, I was cast in that in the original cast and stayed with that show for the first six months. But in the meantime, I was recruited by this Nord, um, this Scandinavian elf who went by the name of Sportacus <laughs> for a TV show that he was filming in Iceland. And it was an interesting choice because I was like, well, I could stay in this show that's doing really well. There are really fun people coming to see it. So I could keep doing that show or I could go to Iceland and have this crazy adventure uh, doing this other show. And I decided it was supposed to be for six or seven months, I think. Uh, initially. So I quit Avenue Q and I flew off to Reykjavik. And that first season, we actually ended up being there the entire year. So I was there from January through December. Uh, and then that show continued off and on for just about a decade. So all the things. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> right. Um, and the show that he mentioned there at the end, just in case you didn't get it, is uh, that's Lazy Town, the one that films in Iceland. And even though it uh, showed in English on, I think, Nickelodeon uh, here in 
the U.S. Uh, that that show was not originally conceived as like a, a U.S. centric show. So it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, I and I love how basically you know Jody started out. He was he was going to do writing, and then he got to do music. Um, and that's the degree that he got. And then he had also had this interest in puppetry. So then he got into that, but the puppetry allowed him to use all these different parts of himself, which I think like that's a, the best kind of artistic journey story ever. And I feel like it's kind of rare when you have like all, all of these different talents, finding something that brings several of them together is kind of an unusual thing sometimes because it doesn't seem like you know puppetry and singing is at all related really right but but it is because most of the time a puppeteer has to be a performer as as well as like a person who manipulates the puppet well um and and you, I don't know, I guess I I hadn't really thought about that as much until I started knowing some puppeteers because um, the aforementioned Mary Robinette Qual, in addition to being an author, is also a puppeteer, as I said, because um, she worked with Jody And learning from her, like all the different things that go into puppetry has been very fascinating for me. Um, but also... With Jody's path, is it's a little bit different from um, what he says is the normal path for puppeteers because for him, it didn't come out of an art design background. It came out of the, you know, singing, performance, writing background. Yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about puppetry is that it combines so many different skills. Normally, well, I don't know normally. I, uh, most puppeteers seem to be people who come from more of a hands-on art, like sculpting or drawing, designing in some way. Uh, So I was a little bit of an outlier in that I do not make puppets, um, but I was writing for them and composing music for them and performing with them. So I was on the outside in that way because almost all the other puppeteers uh, were people who were craftsmen, like made things that you could touch and poke and play with. <laughs> um, in fact, even now people will say, oh, um, we have this event. We would love for you to come do some puppetry. I don't actually own any puppets, uh, which is also quite strange uh, for a puppeteer to not own puppets. But, uh, you know, when I'm hired for something, the puppets are provided. So I've that's just how I roll, I guess. I don't show up with a puppet. So what's interesting about that is it sort of reminds me a little bit of the conversation that I had with Nyla about how she ended up becoming an illustrator. And it happened because she was like, I want to do this. And then she discovered that there was a way that she could go to college and do it. And even though um, Jody didn't say like, I'm going to be a puppeteer. So I'm going to start out in writing and, and music and work my way into that. It was it was more that he just had that option. He was open to the option of, you know, working with puppets. He And, and I like the idea that you can just come at almost anything from a different path than is normal and still be successful at it, still find a way, find your niche in it or, or find a way to like make it work for you. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I always feel like it's interesting to hear from people who didn't come at it art from the quote normal way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, 
I don't know. I feel like, and maybe I've said this here before, but I feel like our generation, especially there, it's hard because technology has changed so much and the way people think about things has changed so much that like, um, like the traditional paths for getting to places don't necessarily apply anymore. Um, and so like figuring out how, I don't know, like how your skills all blend together so that you can, you can do a thing, whether it's what you intended or whether it's like, oh, hey, I I can do this, um, is I think kind of challenging sometimes, but I think it leads to so many awesome possibilities that we haven't even thought of yet, you know, like people broadly haven't thought of. Yeah, exactly. And I love that that is all sort of happening now. And I feel like, of course, this isn't 100% new to now. There's always been ways that people have busted through and done different things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it does feel a lot like now there are way more possibilities for doing stuff and also way more opportunities for you to get into doing stuff no matter how far along you are in your career path, like, or even how far along you are in the timeline of your life. Because I feel like I've seen a lot of tweets recently from people who are saying, you know, I was 50 years old the first time I published my book. Therefore, you have not, you're not late to the game just because you're 39, you know, things like that. Um, Which, you know, it, it all sort of comes from the same place where it's like, you don't have to be a certain age in order to make it. You don't have to have done a certain type of thing in order to like do this other thing that you like it. And it's more possible now. I like that. Yeah, I do too. Especially as someone who's uh, feeling that things are a little bit nebulous (laughs) career wise right now. It's like, um, yeah, like I don't have to do the thing that my degree says I'm supposed to do or even get a degree or whatever. So um, it's encouraging. Don't get a degree, kids. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give that that advice. But I I have long felt that, especially now, especially with with, with what's going on right now, um, high school seniors going right into college. I don't know that that's necessarily the 100 percent best thing to do in every case. I certainly feel like I might have benefited from college more if I had figured out what I wanted to do in life uh, a little bit earlier than I did. Um, And some people will say to me when I say they're like, well, but college is all about exploring things that you know what you want to do. And I'm like, that's an awfully expensive exploration. Yep. And that's not the only way to explore. No. And and I mean, that's what I did. And now I have, you know, $80,000 of student loan debt. So maybe don't do that unless you're rich. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And, and so for some people, yes, going to college right out of high school is a good thing for them. But for some people, it really isn't. And I have to wonder if the latter case is more true for people who are of a creative and artistic bent. I don't know. Yeah, I think that there's that. And I think there's also like an intelligence factor, too. Like if you're um, if you're high functioning and um and have the possibility, can do a lot of things, it's harder to narrow down into a thing because you can, one, imagine possibilities and two, know that you have, you know, like the, 
the ability to pick up fast enough that you could do a lot of different things. Exactly. Although I do like that, you know, in this case with Jody, he he went to he went to college and at first he was like, I'm gonna be a writing major. And then he's like, Nope, music, because then they'll pay. <laughs> they'll pay for me to have yes. my voice lessons, which is nice. Um, but in that and and in that case it did work out for him. And what's interesting is like I think as I started talking to Jody, I was realizing how we have like some similar things in our backgrounds because I started off doing one thing in my case it was music and then um switched to a more writing based degree, although my degree isn't anything specific. It's just a degree. Um, I know. Strange, isn't it? Um, but because he was a, he had that freedom within, you know, whatever system he was working in, he was able to get more out of his education. Um, as, as you know, if you listened to previous episodes of this podcast, I'm slightly bitter about how terrible my education was given <laughs> how much money it costs. Oh, my Lord. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, it's it's like there's no one path and I feel like that is one of the most important things to really think about as um, a creative person is that there's never just one path to doing a thing, even if it seems like there's only one path. Which is encouraging. Indeed. Indeed it is. Um, And if your path is going to take you into puppetry, (laughs) I'm really bad at segues at any rate. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, (laughs) As I said, I've been um, really fascinated by puppetry, especially since I got to know Mary. But also, like most other children in America, I loved me some Sesame Street as a kid and and have always been like, but Cookie Monster, he's the best. And and Kermit is also awesome, the best. And so the Muppets and Sesame Street have always been really big for me. And so I was curious, since Jody did not start out necessarily like hyper-focused on puppetry, but did end up there. I I asked him about what um, the most surprising things are that he discovered once he started working uh, very seriously in that realm. Stillness is surprising because when you're taking an inanimate object and trying to give it the illusion of life, I think the first thing you think is, oh, I got to move this thing around all the time. Uh, Otherwise it's dead, which turns out to not be true. Uh, what you really need is focus, and sometimes focus is still. Um, so I think that was surprising. Uh, I think it was surprising how much puppetry relies on the imagination of the audience and how they supply things that I didn't realize they would supply. Uh, and this was revealed in questions where the puppets we were using had no moving mouths, no moving facial expressions. They were rigid uh, fiberglass sculptures. But people would come up after the show and ask us how we made the eyes blink or how, and I was like, we didn't do that, you did. Because <laughs> they don't move. Uh, and so that was fascinating to me how uh, the audience could make the puppets do things that they don't actually do. That is fascinating. People have imaginations. What? No. Um, It's also (laughs) not something I would have thought that would be, you know, I don't think about how much I as an audience member bring to a puppetry show, but that totally makes sense. I probably would have also been like, how they do that? The eyes are blinking. Yeah. What's going on? This is amazing. That totally would have been me. Um, I and I I love that. I love the whole magic of the way that 
especially modern puppetry is. Um, well, I, I shouldn't say like all modern puppetry because we're going to get into like some differences in what's going on like just in the past 10 years than say the 10 to 20 years before that. But for instance, I really love how even at this, in this world that we live in where there's no allusion to anything, the Sesame Street and Muppet companies seem to be very, very into preserving the idea that the Muppets are independent creatures. <laughs> you don't see Muppeteers, right? Mm-hmm. Like even like, I remember Miss Piggy was on the Wendy Williams show and no, I don't watch the Wendy Williams show, but I saw this clip and she's sitting on Wendy Williams couch having a conversation with her. And all I could think the whole time I was watching the clip was how many people are inside of that couch right now <laughs> that we cannot <laughs> see manipulating mm-hmm. this puppet. And like, but they were committed to it. Like they didn't, I don't even think that that was a different couch than you see on the Wendy Williams show anyway. Like they didn't go to a different space so that Wendy could have this discussion with Miss Piggy uh, and make it easier on the puppeteers. They, they stuff people in a couch. <laughs> Bless their hearts. Right. And and I I love that. I love that they are trying to maintain that magic that is the Muppets. Um, Another beautiful story that I've heard, um, I think this came from one of the biographies of Jim Henson, is there's a, a clip from Sesame Street that you can still find about a little girl, little blonde girl doing the ABCs with Kermit. And the the excerpt from the biography was talking about how, you know, before the cameras were rolling and everything, Jim Henson is just standing there, you know, with Kermit. And then, you know, he gets under the table, the camera rolls, Kermit comes alive, and the little girl immediately, like, is like, Kermit is in front of me. And even though she saw that, like, Kermit is a puppet and there's a dude and whatever, she immediately just locks onto Kermit and, and they do their bit and she, she's enamored with him. And, and so, and like I said, the clip is on YouTube somewhere. I'll see if I can find it so we can put it in the show notes, but I've, I've watched that clip many times and just been like, this is adorable. And, and she's like, Kermit is real in her mind. Kermit is real. Even though she had evidence that he wasn't, I just puppets, man. Yeah. Well, and it's, um, I don't know. I think it's a testament to, I don't know, the belief of children or, or kind of how we become more cynical as we get older, you know, like, uh, kids are open to anything. They're open to so many possibilities. And it's only when we get older that we kind of get, you know, so rigid in our thinking and some of that, I don't know, some of that plasticity would be nice to have as an adult and something that I try to, I don't know, kind of force on myself Um, just because the world is so much better when you believe that maybe not anything can happen, but that a lot of things can happen. Yeah, I agree. The world is always better when you when you think there are more possibilities. Mm -hmm. I was happier when I thought that I would be able to get on a spaceship and fly away. Mm -hmm. It could happen. Well, it could happen. I don't know. SpaceX <laughs> isn't sending any people up anytime soon. Well, and even we'll though see. Virgin I America mean, says they're going to have flights to the moon, I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens, I guess. <laughs> Does it, isn't it like Elon Musk's dearest dream to live on Mars? And if anyone has the money to make that happen, it's him. 
Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, does Elon Musk really need to live on Mars? I feel like there are other people who need to live on Mars a little bit more. Maybe people who need to get away from jerk faces. Oh, I was thinking we we send the jerk faces to Mars. <laughs> Funded by one of the jerk faces. But then they get to have like a really cool experience that no one else is having. Yeah, but but there's also the impending heat death of the surface of Mars that's only oh. you know, right there. Just hmm. or the crushing gravity. Or mm. <laughs> you know. You have a point. You have a point. Yeah. yeah. All right. Maybe we, we won't all run away from Elon Musk to Mars, but still though. Bad <laughs> feelings. Um, but yeah, I I think that it is one of the things that separates good performers from great performers that you are able to wrap people up in the world that you are creating either on the page, on the stage, um, in video, whatever it is. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've always admired Puppeteer so much is because the really good ones, like they create these just amazing performances and and things that become so real to us. I'm I'm also thinking of like, okay, so Star Wars is out this weekend and we will not be discussing The Last Jedi um, because spoilers. Um, the unicorns were great. Well, okay. We, the unicorns were great. It's true. Um, but I, so but in terms of Star Wars, I remember how much when the prequels came out, everybody was like, Yoda is so wrong. CGI Yoda is terrible. Puppet Yoda was better. And I know some people only thought that CGI Yoda was wrong and terrible because they hate technology and they're like, CGI is blah. But originally, yeah, but I have recently had reason to take note of the difference but in the in the feeling and the sensibility between CGI Yoda and Puppet Yoda and Puppet Yoda wins because Puppet Yoda is the result of a real performance and incidentally though even speaking of CGI this is some of the reason why Andy Circus is a more amazing actor than he probably, you know, that most people probably mm-hmm. give him credit for because most people don't see his face, right? Andy Circus gave us Gollum. He gave us Caesar. Um, I'm pretty sure he's the actor behind uh, Snoke in he The is. Last Jedi. Again, mm-hmm. no, no spoilers, but just, I mean, that's not a spoiler. He's the actor. So he's giving us all these really amazing performances. And part of the reason is because not only is he like the voice, but in a lot of instances, and this started um, partway partway through the Lord of the Rings of him actually like giving a performance that they record digitally that they use to then map the CGI and make a performance there. It works because it's, it's actually Andy Serkis performing, not just speaking, but performing. Yep whole whole body yeah yeah and even though i don't like benedict cumberbach or as i like to call him but a white guy can't be con um (laughs) i i do think that part of the reason why his performance as smog was so effective is because they literally put a whole bunch of little dots on his face and they're like go be smog and there's there's video of him just writhing around the floor hissing and making noises and i've only seen bits of the various hobbit movies because i kind of refuse to watch them but the smog bits smog is pretty good 
The rest of it is some trash, but Smog is pretty good. Yeah. I haven't, I watched the first one and I was like, how about I never watch anything else from The Hobbit again? Um, yeah, and I'm okay I, with that choice. Yeah, I knew. I mean, the minute they were like, it's going to be three movies, I was like, well, you're yep. not going to see those. Yep. No need. Agreed. So, yeah. Um. <laughs> so, speaking of like different kinds of performances, uh, puppetry or not, um, I was asking Jody about... Um, puppet design and and the and he talked a little bit about the way that the relationship between the puppeteer and the puppet has changed uh in different productions that he's done and i found this all like really amazing too um especially in light of a show that i see often that i'm going to talk about um in just a second after we play this clip i think that the simpler the puppet is the the more that's going to happen um one of the companies that i was really fascinated by was a Polish company called Virschelin who even had fewer moving parts. They didn't even have moving arms or moving legs. They were kind of roughly hewn wooden sculptures and they would animate them, but they were really like just using them as a force of energy and like slamming them down on the playboard and interacting. And But the performance was also in their own body, in the actor's body. And I became very interested in that. And... Um, when later I was artistic director of Tears of Joy Theater, I did a trilogy of indigenous people's stories. We started with Bridge of the Gods, which is from the Columbia Gorge, which where we were located. Uh, then we did a story from India called The Secret of Singbanga. And finally, we did a story from Australia called Singing Our Way Home. And there was a progression where uh, the puppeteers became more and more a part of the performance. So you didn't so often see them dressed in black with hoods on hiding their faces, but they became some kind of energy in the performance as well. Um, to the point that by the time we got to singing our way home, we actually were using puppets that were really totems and the act, the puppeteers were using their own arms on the sides of the totems to create gestures and, um, and the way they moved influenced your perception of the, energy from the puppet. And I became really fascinated by that. So I was wondering, Aline, have you ever seen um, The Lion King? I have seen The Lion King in Las Vegas. That's cool. Vegas it was is very awesome. cool. <laughs> I don't know how it maybe differed from the Broadway version. Um, like, was it more Vegasy? But I feel like The <laughs> Lion King is a pretty... Um, ostentatious is that the word production uh, elaborate um no matter where it is yeah that's true it's probably actually very similar um and the reason why i'm asking is because i i wanted to get your thoughts on the way your impression of the way that the different actors used their sort of accoutrements that made them animals best because for those of you who haven't seen the lion king um it's you know, there are humans who are being these animals. And in some cases, the animal part of the thing that indicates that they're this animal is that they have like a headdress um, or, or a mask that comes down or something along those lines. But then there's also uh, Zazu, who's the bird in the movie. And so the actor who is portraying Zazu basically has like a bird sized puppet on him but he is also performing. So I was just wondering what you thought of that. 
I'm trying to remember because it's been, oh gosh, close to a decade since I've seen it. Um, maybe not close to a decade. I don't know. It was probably like 2010 or 11. Um, I remember really being awed by the opening. So they come in, the company is all elaborately dressed um, as these different animals in there. You know, if you think about the Lion King movie, um, you know, the, the opening sequence when they're singing the circle of life is this, um, crowd of animals, uh, around a, a butte, um, and, you know, Simba's up there with his dad and, you know, he's being presented to the subjects of the kingdom. And so they do this procession at the beginning of the show where they have everybody in these elaborate, um, not animal costumes, but costumes that invoke different animals. And just like thinking that there's no way anything else in the show would top the opening of the show because just the way they moved was different based on the animal that they were embodying. Like they were all very, very graceful. Um, but there was that, like there, there was just like that visual rep or visual reference to what they were supposed to be or what they were portraying that, that made it really, really clear. Yeah. I love that opening as well. It's, Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's so overwhelming and awesome. And, and I remember that. And I remember just being struck by the performance of the actor who was playing Zazu, because as I said, he's basically just like, you know, carrying, or I think it's like attached to his arm, this puppet of a bird you know, it's not a life-size bird. It's just the bird-size bird. And part of his performance was not only like moving the mouth of the bird and having the bird react to what people are saying and whatnot, but to also like be the bird himself. And so there are just things that he did in his movements in the way that he talked through the bird to us, you know, that I was like, oh, this is such a cool style. I love that. Um, I never saw Avenue Q on Broadway. Um, but apparently that was part of what was going on with Avenue Q as well. Um, and Jody's going to talk about that in a little bit, but the next thing I saw that reminded me of that was actually a show that happens, uh, in Disney world at Disney's animal kingdom. It's called finding Nemo, the musical. And yes, it only exists in animal kingdom here at Disney world, which is a shame because it's actually really awesome. And the, um, composer and lyricist that did, Frozen, uh, and also did Avenue Q and the Book of Mormon did Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo, I think, came before they did Frozen. And with Nemo, since it's, a, again, a story that's all about animals and this, well, fish in the sea, um, you know, in order to do that live on stage, you have to employ some, something other than just like people wearing fish costumes, right? And the puppetry that is in Finding Nemo is amazing. And I love that 
it's again a performance of the actor as well as the puppet that they are holding. Like all parts of them are involved in this. And it's, you know, getting towards what Jody was talking about at the end of that last section where, you know, you have like the totems and then the actors, you know, the puppeteers doing arm movements and whatnot. And it was more about like a complete performance. And that's what I see in Nemo. And I love it. I I have seen this show many times because I have a friend who works at Disney World and whenever, and he works in Nemo. And whenever I come visit him, I go to watch the show uh, because he is in it. And there, uh, I will include links uh, in the show notes to some YouTube videos that show different parts of the show because it's on YouTube a lot. And, And you'll see just like the way that the, you know, Nemo and Marlin interact with each other, the actress who plays the actresses who play Dory are all amazing. I've seen the show multiple times and I love all the actresses who play Dory. They just are, they're so much fun. And, and all the different ways that they design the costumes and the puppets and all this stuff to make it work for every aspect of the show. Oh my gosh. I just love it. And I love that that is like a style of puppetry that I guess people feel are free to do now. I feel like narrower ideas about puppetry probably have existed in the past. And I think it takes somebody who is like, we don't have to do it exactly that way in order to make something like that happen. Mm -hmm. So what is it like, you said that you've seen a lot of different artists or a lot of different actors portraying Dory. Um, Have you noticed a lot of differences in the way that they, that they portray the character? Well, the differences that come with, Anytime you see uh, a play where uh, an actor brings something a little bit different to the role each time, even though they're playing the same person, um, like with the with the Dorys, especially it it often comes down to differences in comedic timing, because obviously Dory is a very comedic character. Uh, a lot of the stuff that she does is played for laughs and. There's sometimes just like the slightest difference in the line delivery, the the jovialness with which the actress delivers the line or something along those lines that I'm like, oh, I'm watching that Dory because I don't know their names. But I do often, because I've seen the show so many times, I do often recognize their performances. And so I'll be like, oh, right, this is the Dory that I really love because I love the way that she says this line. I love that, 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 you know, you have Dory's A, B, C, D. Right. They're in my head. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not such a Disney super fan that I actually know who is playing Dory because there are Disney super fans who, even though it's not, they're not supposed to know, it's not really listed. Um, they know the different actors and actresses who play the roles and they'll be like, oh, I, I can't wait to see if my favorite Dory is in this show today. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. I love that. And I, I love the, um, I don't know. I, I love the way that people can bring different spins on roles, you know, even though you, someone performing Shakespeare has the same lines, no matter where they're performing it, but the different inflection, the different audiences even bring something different to the role. And it's neat to see the spin that even within very limited constraints, you know, like 
it's it's Dory in a musical at Disney World where there's not a lot of room for, you know, it's it's a very precise machine, you know, Disney World is. And um, just being able to see and, and find differences in performances within that set of constraints, I think, is an amazing bit of ingenuity and a bit of... Um, diverse perspective, I guess, that I think is like a manifestation of having different perspectives and different thoughts about um, a role or a subject that I think is really neat. Yeah. And I love that there's now a, a sort of idea in theater puppetry that not only is the the person who is operating the puppet, like you need them to be technically proficient in that, but they are are also part of bringing the that character to life. So mm-hmm. I talked to Jody about that because of the way that um this works in Avenue Q cuz I haven't seen Avenue Q but I've seen I've heard the music from it I've seen the stills and so I know that that it involves not just um like puppets talking to each other but like actual humans being part of the performance. So uh, I asked him to talk a little bit about that style of puppetry. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a very similar thing that Avenue Q did as well, where you're doing the performance simultaneously. Uh, So you have a puppet that's doing the performance. And it's different because you're not the puppeteer in that instance. You are the character at the same time. Whereas these other shows we've been talking about, there's a separation between the puppet character and the puppeteer, who is also a character, but not the same character necessarily. They're adding additional information that's separate from the character of the puppet. Whereas Nemo and Avenue Q, you are providing the same character in two different mediums, which is really an interesting thing. And uh, it was funny because in rehearsals for Avenue Q, they had to keep pulling my arm down because traditionally with that kind of mouth puppet, uh, I was used to holding it over my head. You know, and of course, in, in TV puppetry, you're doing the same thing. You're fully extended, trying to get that puppet way up in the air so that the camera can cut off before it gets to your own head. Uh, but in Avenue Q, they want the head right next to your head because both of you are looking the same direction. You're talking at the same time. Uh, you're expressing the same emotion. Uh, there was never a separation in either of those shows between the puppeteer's emotional intent and subtext and the puppet's emotional intent and subtext. It's always the same all the way through the show. So puppetry seems really complicated to me. And I don't know if this, this is because I've I've never tried any kind of puppetry. I've never been exposed to that, but to all, to simultaneously control the puppet and also inhabit the role seems like it would be really uh, a lot to wrap your head around. Like it, it sounds really hard to me. Yeah, it does to me as well. And I'm sure it's not as hard quite as much as it seems to us because we're not puppeteers, but right. that that just increases my admiration for puppeteers who can manage to do this. And I, and I love that line about like the puppeteer's emotional intent uh, matching the puppet's emotional intent because that that also seems like that would create like such a such an interesting nuanced performance. I mean, I often when I think of mouth puppets other than thinking about the muppets, I'm thinking about like 
uh, comedians who have like a puppet as part of their shtick and they, mm-hmm. they have conversations with it and whatnot. But even then, like that's a different thing because they're a person who's having a conversation with the puppet person. They're not like mirroring each other. They're not doing the same thing. They're not part of the same entity. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it just sounds like something that is so complex and cool and I, yeah, I'm sort of in love with the magic of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So I asked Jody about this because I feel like Lion King was the first time I had ever seen anything like that. I think that's why I noticed and remembered it so well, the the whole thing with the actor playing Zazu. Um, and then the next time I saw it was in Nemo. And of course, it's in Avenue Q. And I just wondered if that was like, if that came from some tradition um, or if it was... A, a new style of puppetry. It certainly wasn't a performance style that I had experienced before Avenue Q. Um, it was it was one of the loneliest shows I've ever been in because uh, one of the things we were directed is as a character who as a actor who has a puppet on your arm you're instructed to only, if you encounter another actor with a puppet on their arm, you only look in the puppet's eyes. So they're looking in your puppet's eyes and you're looking in their puppet's eyes. Now, there are also human characters in that show that don't have puppets, but they're directed to look in the puppet's eyes. And so when you're looking at them, you never have eye contact with anyone in the show, the whole show. It's no eye contact, which was really strange. Mm-hmm. Um, and also how we would know when we had a new person um, that we were rehearsing into the show, because early on they would look at you in the eyes and it felt completely wrong and weird. Uh, and so then it became strange to have eye contact. I don't know if I could deal with that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've been, I've been thinking about it while we were playing that clip and I think the Lion King. So I've known about Avenue Q mostly because of the internet is for porn. Um, that is a song that at one point was played far and wide. Um, I haven't heard it lately like it doesn't come up like it used to a couple of years ago but um but I've never I never really seen performances of it so I didn't realize that it was more than kind of like the Muppet style performance that we're used to I just kind of assumed that it was a bunch of people beyond you know like sitting behind a table so that you wouldn't see the person controlling it um so it, it's really interesting to me from a stylistic choice that they decided to do that. Uh, it seems, you know, like it would be a lot easier if your your actors and your puppets can move around freely. Um, but thinking about how that applies to, you know, like my experience of The Lion King, I guess I didn't realize that The Lion King was so revolutionary, I guess. if I don't know if that's the word in this regard um, because... I didn't have a lot of exposure to this kind of thing growing up. And even like in as, as an adult, I don't live in an area where there's a lot of, you know, theater. We get, you know, traveling companies that come to, to Arizona State University sometimes, um, you know, and I'll catch a show every once in a while. But um, it's really cool to think about how how people take these things that seem impossible and make them possible within the the realm of our uh our physicality our need to occupy space yeah indeed 
I think that the first time I ever even heard about that kind of puppetry happening on stage was a production called The Green Bird, which I, I've never seen. I've seen like clips of it. Um, but in, now that I'm thinking about it, it, I think it's because I saw that on Zazu and it was sort of the same deal um, with the puppetry for The Green Bird, except for that one, the the person doing the puppeteer was like all dressed up in black and they weren't really supposed to be there. And that was, you know, part of the artistry of it. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, Julie Taymor directed the green bird, which is, I think like right before she then directed the lion King. And again, I'm, my memory is fuzzy on this, but if I remember correctly, I think Julie Taymor got the lion King gig because Disney saw what she had done with the green bird. And they were like, we really want to bring lion King to Broadway, but we're not sure how to make it happen. And Julie Taymor was like, I can tell you how to make this happen. Um, and yeah, because it's, that's the first time that Disney was like trying to bring an entirely animal cast to a Broadway production. I mean, with Beauty and the Beast, you have a lot of things going on where there's like people dressed up like candlesticks and mm-hmm. and clocks and stuff. But one of the changes that they made to the story in the Broadway play versus the movie is that... um it's supposed to be that the servants are very slowly over time turning into these objects. And so that sort of explains why they're still human sized and like, they don't look exactly like a clock, you know, basically not everybody looks in the play the way they look in the movie where like Mrs. Teapot is literally the size of a teapot chip is the size of a cup, you know, that kind of thing. Everybody's like big. And that's one of the ways that they explained that was that they were like, well, we've been slowly over the years that, um, the prince has been under this curse, turning into inanimate objects. Uh, and so that was, I feel like that was easier to pull off in a way that made sense on Broadway in the minds of the producers than bringing some animals to Broadway in a way that didn't look cheap and tawdry. Mm-hmm. Can't have cheap and tawdry people. No tawdry. No, no. Not on Broadway. You're spending too much on tickets. Unless that's what you're spending your money on i don't know tawdryness yeah so (laughs) i i love just all the all the different new things that can happen in theater and puppetry and all this stuff because people are like i have a new idea about how to do stuff and somebody's like cool your new idea is an awesome idea let's make that happen yeah it's 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 awesome it's what i want for you know the tech industry (laughs) instead of gatekeeping i want People what? to be like, I have this idea. And for other people to be like, yeah, that's an awesome idea. Let's make that a thing. It also speaks to how sometimes limitation is what causes you to create great art. Yeah. The older I get, the more I think about how it's actually really limiting to have complete free reign over something. It's more like, I, I just feel like, I am my most creative when I have some kind of constraint. It doesn't have to be uh, super stringent or whatever, but some kind of constraint. Like, for example, um, it's the time of year where I update a form for a health insurance company. It's just one of my odd one-off contracts that I have, um, which is actually a really creative exercise. And I am really proud of that thing because it's, it's this form that used to be 10 pages long and now it's four, you know, because of one, they put this, they imposed this on me. They were like, all right, we've got this 10 page form. 
uh, we need to make it four pages. How are we going to make that happen? And it's something that I've made happen, you know, but I don't think it would be as good a form if they'd been like, okay, just do whatever with this, you know, and they'd been like, we don't care if it's 20 pages long, make it 20 pages long. Um, It's a much better, tighter, easier to fill out form because they want it to be short or as short as possible. I love it. Also, yes, make form shorter, please. (laughs) Everyone everywhere, short forms. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. So Jody is a fascinating person who lived in New York and lived in Iceland uh, and lived in Portland. And but where I met him, as mentioned previously, it was at Searle's place, which is in Boise, Idaho. And I was like, so Boise, Idaho, though. What's up with that? Why'd you come to Boise? Well, when Lazy Town was actively filming, I spent about half my time in New York and about half my time in Iceland, which was kind of perfect for me. Uh, Once we weren't as active in production and I was in New York more, uh, it was harder for me to stay there. It was uh, just a lot of New York. There's just a lot of compromises you have to make in your quality of life and... um, your interaction with nature and with space. And I was done uh, living that way. And I sold my apartment and didn't know where I was going to go. And there was a kind of a short list of places and all the places would have been me going somewhere where I didn't know anybody except for Boise because my family lives here. And I hadn't lived here in 25 years and it seemed like something to try. Uh, well, why don't we go to Boise and see what that's like? So I had nothing for me here when I came. Uh, and so I came up with the idea of doing a coffee and tea steampunk uh, cargo bike where I would pedal around and, and pedal coffee and tea. <laughs> and so that was an interesting way to get to know people. And slowly I started, you know, reintegrating into the theater community here and the storytelling community and the artistic community. Um, And then kind of crafted a career in the arts in Boise that I didn't know would be possible to do uh, because I kind of felt like moving to Boise was going to mean not really, you know, making money in the arts anymore. There's this thing that um, artists often feel like is that they have to go to New York or San Francisco or Chicago in order to, like, have a fulfilling artistic life. And I kind of love the fact that Jody was like, this place isn't really working out for me, New York City. I'll go to Idaho. Which is about as opposite as you can get without literally buying a farm. Right, like going from New York City to literally buying a farm would maybe be more extreme, but... A little. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the same time, he he made a decision not only to go, but then to say, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do what I'm doing in New York in Boise, so let me come up with this other thing that I can do so I can meet people. Like making your own opportunities like that, I... I approve. I think, again, this is the thing that great artists can do is they're like, okay, I, I can't 
you know, do exactly this here. So let me carve out a little niche so I can be like happy and fulfilled. I like that. I, I wish I had that kind of creativity that like, oh, what if I did, you know, like a, a bicycle tea and coffee cart? Like that would never, ever occur to me. Like ever in a million years would that occur to me? And I love it. Like, I don't know. I I just love, I love the things that people come up with. Yes, I do love that. And, and I also love that it's, you know, it just goes against the thinking that, you know, creativity all comes from one place. Um, Right. Yeah. So Jodi is involved in a lot of different artistic things uh, in the Boise art community not only um, with Searle's Place, but also with a podcast um, and a, an event called Story Story Night, which he's going to talk about in a little bit. Um, he's also involved in the theater in Boise. And while I was there, I got to see him play the role of Dorothy in the Golden Girls Christmas Extravaganza. Oh, my which God. Which was amazing. Oh, my so God. So amazing. And, and yeah, and... When I came to Boise, one of the things that I was, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see it, but I was like happy to see that it was true, was that there is a really active artistic community there um, in all the different arts. Um, I didn't get a chance to go to Story Story Night because I was working very, very hard on my book, but I do listen to the Story Story Night podcast and I just, I heard lots of things about it and I love that even though Jody didn't come to Boise to be thinking that he was going to have a fulfilling artistic life, he was able to build one. Um, and he talks a little bit about like how, how he went about doing that and what he found. Well, I mean, one of the things that I would, in my experience anyway, that shines brightly <laughs> is the contrast in the storytelling community. So in New York, I was involved with The Moth, which is obviously well-known and is doing extremely well and growing all over the, all over the country. Uh, but in New York, you know, your typical Moth experience was a long wait in the line, which you may or may not get into the venue. The venue is quite small and there are very few places to sit. So it's kind of uncomfortable, like very crowded. And, uh, and then the stories themselves, many were amazing, but many were, I would say superficial. Uh, they were people who were looking to become, were looking for their story to take them somewhere, to take them to the next step. They're living, they're doing things with the intent of turning it into a story, which has a really different feeling than people who are just sharing stories from their life, which when I went to the first storytelling show here uh, in Boise, I was just blown away by the raw honesty, uh, the vulnerability, uh, how much I empathized and was drawn into their experience in a way that I was not for the majority of the stories, uh, in New York. Um, the other thing that would happen is because the moth initially is structured as kind of a competition where people vote on the stories, people tend to tell, start telling stories that they think are going to get a high score. So we don't do that here. Uh, there's not that competition element. It's just, 
and and there's no reward offered really aside from just telling your story, which is not an easy thing to do. So I would argue that the quality of the storytelling in many ways is higher here than it is in Manhattan. Um, There are many people who will argue with me about that, but uh, I would invite them to listen to the Story Story Night podcast and compare it to what they're hearing in the bar and, you know, on the Lower East Side and see what they think. So it's interesting to me, um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, why I want to create things. And um, we'll probably talk about this more in a few episodes um, when we talk about audience building. But the subject of audience building has really made me think, like, why do I create things and put them out in the world? Like, why did I do less than or equal? Why did I... Um, you know, any podcast I do, why do we do originality? Is it because I want, you know, I don't know, internet fame. That's like huge, huge. I'm making huge air quotes. Nobody can see me, but like huge air quotes, right? But like internet fame or like why, why Apple launch map my business? Why am I creating this? Is it for me because I want something for me or is it because I want to give something else um, to, to other people, whether that's, you know, with less than or equal, it was always, um, I wanted, I wanted hope and I wanted to show people that they aren't alone in their struggles. And I wanted to, to demonstrate like there is space for you. Like if you're not part of the, whatever mainstream idea is for the thing that you love, like that's okay. There's space for you. There's a place for you. But his story about how things, um, the storytelling, like at the moth is different from the storytelling, um, in, in Boise is, um, it, I don't know. It really has me thinking about that. Like, why do we put things out in the world? Why do we take vacations? Like, is it because we want to have stories to tell later or is it because, you know, we want to enrich our experiences? Like just what is my motivation? What is our motivation for doing whatever thing? I just want to make people giggle. That's why I do like 50% of the things I do in life. (laughs) But yeah, there's uh, the motivation for making art and, you know, there are a million people who will talk about this, who have talked about this. And you'll get people who say, you should make art for yourself. And there are the people like, that's lovely. But also, I would like to eat by my art. And so I'm going to make the art for for this other thing as well as myself. But very often what you'll hear that it comes down to is that the people who are making the art that they want to see in the world are who are making like the best art, um, whether or not it's the best by commercial standards, you know, is debatable, but just like on, on a purely like instinctual level, like the things that you're doing because you want to put out in the world, what you want to see, you want to put out something that people who are like you, or like, you know, kids who were like you or when you were a kid have something to be like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. This is wonderful. And yeah, so if you want to 
if you're like really into storytelling and the thing is, is that you're not like trying to just have experiences so that you could tell a better story. Like you're just going out and having experiences and then you're like, Oh, I can turn this into a story. Like, the, yeah, it's different. It takes on a different edge. It, you know, I feel like sometimes you can tell that with fiction, at least the fiction I read where I'm like, Did, what, what, do you, what is this? Did you just, <laughs> you know, you just really wanted to like make people have this horrible feeling about stuff. I won't get into how the mist of Avalon made me throw it across the room because of oh, no. this kind of thing, but yeah, but, and, and it's interesting too, because there are some people who really, they spend a lot of time like really examining everything that happens to them because they are hoping to use that in some way. Um, performers do this a lot. I've also seen some writers do this, but I feel like, sometimes consciously paying attention to that kind of thing. So you're like, oh, I have to remember how this feels so I can use it later. It, it's sometimes, I don't know, it, like, I think it, it also depends on differences in, in the type of person that you are. Because when I have experiences like that, I don't necessarily go, I need to consciously remember that, but I just do. But then I think that, you know, that could just be me. Other people may need to consciously remember it, but I don't know. It just feels like sometimes when you just like live in the moment, instead of like thinking about what's going to happen in the next moment or down the line, then, then it comes up in organic ways in your work. If that makes sense. So it's interesting to me because I've been listening to uh, Jenny Lawson's first book. Um, and those of you do, who don't know, she's the blog S she started out as a blogger and then kind of wrote this memoir. And she has some interesting life experiences to tell. So every once in a while, I think I should sit down and write a story about like, I don't know, whatever childhood thing. But like she's talking about her her father, like bringing a bobcat into the house and just kind of flinging it at her, I don't know, boyfriend or husband or whatever he was at the time. And I'm just like, I don't have experiences like that. I I can't, like, my life is very mundane compared to these things. And um, I think that there's an artistry, like, if you have a life like mine and not like Jenny has had <laughs> where, you know, you haven't had family members, you know, letting ducklings loose in the house just for fun, um, that th there's an artistry to telling, telling stories about the everyday that I think is really beautiful. Um, and I think it's something that, that we don't see a lot of, but I think that they're important stories to tell. I agree. I definitely agree. And I, I definitely encourage um, people to listen to the Story Story Night podcast and see if there is a corresponding storytelling community where you are um, and go to their shows if there are some and participate if they have a great audience participation, which they should, because, yeah, it's just sometimes just hearing about other people's lives in a way that I mean, obviously, they, you want them to be good storytellers so that you're interested in the story. But, like, some people can tell a story about the most mundane things and make it sound amazing. And that's the kind of thing that you discover at, like, storytelling slams, which that's what I, that's what I really like about them. I'm going to have to listen because um, I feel like maybe this might be a good spark for my own creativity and my own storytelling. Awesome. Down with that. Um, so the last thing we're going to hear from Jody, uh, which is going to seek into our next episode, um, is 
as he was talking about how amazing the storytelling community was compared to New York, he was also saying, but there are some, um, some of the arts here in Boise that aren't really as good as some of the stuff that I saw in New York, but that is sometimes just comes down to differences in, um, what is offered in the place where you are. So maybe it has something to say about the different art forms and what they need. Cause like storytelling doesn't need a big budget and a producer and, you know, theater does, especially if you're trying to do something big, you know, artists, I think also in some ways, the artists in New York are, have more of a challenge because what you need for art is time and space, which is we're sitting in an artist residency right now, which is what that is all about. Searle's place is about giving artists the time and the space to do their work. And that's very hard to do in New York because your space is generally very, very small uh, and also very, very expensive, which means your time is got a big crunch on it because I mean, when you're living in a place like that and I lived there for 10 years, time is money, you know, and very few people can afford to just be in the art, if they even have an art studio, most of them don't, they're probably painting in their bedroom or something. And so, and, but at the same time, you're having to make your rent and you have to get a job that's going to pay that. And usually the, even though the expenses are so high, the, I don't find that the hourly rates necessarily reflect that. And so people are still having to work a lot of hours in order to make their bills. And I think that's, that's a hindrance to the art. So I'm going to talk about this more in the next episode, but I will say that, yes, as a person who lived in New York City um, and was mostly making it there as a, an artist, um, it is, it's very difficult. And also in general, like it, it sometimes doesn't feel like it's worth it. But aside, aside from that, which again, I'll talk about next episode. I love the idea that, you know, different kinds of art does well or flourishes in different kinds of spaces. If you are a visual artist, if you're making like paintings on giant canvases or sculptures or art installations or something like that, you need to have a space to do that. And so you can't necessarily do that inside of a tiny cramped New York apartment where you're living with four different people. Um, but you can have the space uh, in a relatively inexpensive lifestyle in somewhere like Boise, Idaho, or maybe Phoenix, Arizona, or <laughs> Columbus, Ohio, mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Um, I mean, when I was a kid growing up in Ohio, I remember hearing about and meeting people who were novelists and artists where they're like, yes, I lived in New York for such and so many years, but now I live here. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you in Ohio? I am steady trying to escape from this place <laughs> and you have come back here to live. What is happening? But now, now mm -hmm. I understand. Um, yeah, there are some places that are great to be in as an artist because they provide you with inspiration and opportunities and, and sometimes, you know, drives toward create better creativity. But there are some places that are better for you as an artist because they don't, they don't require a whole lot of money. So you don't have to spend all of your time working. You can spend more of your time creating art. Um, they, you, can for the same amount of money get a much larger space. You can afford to buy 
painting supplies or clay or whatever it is. And I do realize that this is, it's harder now sort of to do that than it, than it has been because of like the way the economy is going. So even like in space, inexpensive places to live, you still have to work like full-time jobs in order to afford them in some cases. But, but even at that, like there are just some spaces that just make it easier to flourish than others. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. It's sad, right? Because you might be able to live somewhere where you have like time and space, but maybe it's an area where your creativity isn't being fueled. Um, whereas, you know, maybe your creativity is fueled somewhere that's more expensive, like, you know, New York city and, uh, living there is so, so cost prohibitive. I don't know how people do it. And so it's, there's this, um, I guess there's this conflict and I, I don't think it's for everybody, but I do know, like for me living with, I living where I live because of the way I feel living here. And that's more of a, like, from a a pollen standpoint, I'm literally sick all the time. Um, but I can't, it's really hard for me to be, be creative here. It's really hard for me to write here. So it's like, all right, well, where do we need to go to make this better? And like everywhere I need to go is more expensive. And, and there's, there's just like this, this trade-off, you know, between buying your groceries and, and, uh, being creative that, uh, I don't know, like hopefully most people are able to, to get over that and, you know, living and working in Ohio is the same, um, from a creative standpoint, they're, they're able to be filled and fueled, um, like they are in cities. But, you know, I think sometimes that that falls down. Indeed. But I also think that sometimes it it might fall down in, in part because you're not necessarily going out and looking to see what is mm-hmm. out there and available. Um, you're like, well, I don't see the artistic community and so therefore they don't exist. But, you know, you might have to like dig a little deeper, spend a little more time um, going to things and going out and meeting the community. I mean, I I don't think that if for some reason I was forced to go live in Boise, Idaho, people were like, you have to go and, and live in Boise because of reasons. And I sat there in my house, I would be like, uh, this place has nothing. There's no, there's no real artistic community here. It's because I'm sitting in my house and not actually going out and seeing what's available. Um, there, I feel like there are always pockets somewhere of awesome people who are ready to embrace new folks coming in. Um, as long as you, are open to embracing what is different about being an artist in that community versus the community that you came from, the communities that exist in larger cities, more urban areas, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe that's an episode idea is, you know, finding, finding community. Um, you know, we've talked about, you know, going to museums and, and things to spark creativity that way, but, um, you know, especially since I'm hopefully going to be moving soon, finding, finding community in this new place, wherever that is, would be awesome. And maybe that's something we can explore on the show. I think so. I, I think we can think of a couple of people we could talk to about doing that kind of thing. Awesome. Hooray. All right. So we've come to the end of this episode and I want to give Jody a chance to uh, tell you where you can find out more about him and what he is doing. A lot of the energy I'm putting into the world you can learn about at storystorynight.org. 
or at searlsplace.org. And that's S-U-R-E-L-S-P-L-A-C-E.org. Um, and then I do some local theater here with some small companies that are here. So yeah, so definitely check all that stuff out um, and listen to the podcast. And next time on this podcast, I'm going to talk more about my experience at Searle's Place. And we're going to talk a little bit more uh, to Jody about Boise and New York City, because uh, it all relates to the stuff that I have to say about my time uh, at the Artist Residency. So that's what's going to be happening next time. I'm excited to hear more. Yay. All right. Well, um, I'll have, of course, as always, links to all those things Jody is up to in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Aline. That's A-L-E-E-N. You can find Tempest at Tiny Tempest. And you can tweet at the show at Originality FM. And until next time. Don't be afraid to tell your own story. Goodbye, everybody. In a world where Aline and Kate Best talk about the roots of creative originality, there was an explosion. Who will save us now? Starring Robert Downey Jr., one of the Chris's, and Chaboyega. <laughs> <laughs>